This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. What is going to surprise us in digital pathology in both big ways and small? How can seemingly small changes make a big impact in what we do as pathologists and in the lives of patients? How are we going to make use of large data sets that will inevitably be generated through the wide-scale adoption of digital pathology? Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest is Lewis Cullett, General Manager for Genomics and Oncology Informatics at Philips. We're going to be talking about the current landscape of digital pathology in 2022, where we've been in the past 20 years and even before, the impact of the COVID-19 global health emergency on the adoption of digital pathology, and what's the future of integrated diagnostics, incorporating digital pathology, radiology, as well as molecular diagnostics. Imagine your entire digital pathology workflow from clinic to pathologist wrapped up into a single fully integrated platform. Imagine a dramatic reduction in labor and materials, faster turnaround times, higher cancer detection rates, end-to-end tracking, reduced errors, no geographic boundaries, and not being tethered to a digital cockpit. Imagine no upfront costs and easy setup and only paying for the cases you sign out. The only comprehensive digital pathology platform that starts and ends with the patient is Lumea. Schedule a demo today at lumea.net. That's L-U-M-E-A dot net. Stop imagining. Start using Lumea. Louis Kulat from Philips. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. You have a vast experience in genomics and oncology informatics. And this is interesting how this dovetails into digital pathology. Let's just take a you know 30,000 foot view of the general state of digital pathology based on your unique experience and what you see the landscape as right now. It's interesting. I mean, it's, it's an, certainly an exciting field. And, and you know, I think, honestly, we're, we're at a, a point of inflection in the field today. I'll just talk a little bit about where, you know, how we think about the landscape. And I guess you could break it down into a couple of different areas. So one is like, what can you do with digital pathology? What, what sorts of things that you were able to take these glass slides and turn them into digital images? What does that unpack for, for the field? And there are things that come to mind immediately, like, you know, being able to do uh, case archives forever. So, you know, pathologists store glass slides in file cabinets going back uh, for, for quite some, some time and being able to do this digitally one gives them easier access to the Im- images. You can start learning from the images over time and so forth. But also by digitizing slides, you can route them more easily. You don't have to put them in a package and ship them in a UPS truck or, or, or route them um, physically, but you can actually digitally send them around. I do think about the, the things you can do from, say, a research standpoint versus a clinical standpoint in pathology. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that. But there are uh, certainly ways to apply algorithms that might be really, really useful for research purposes. They're right 99% of the time, but wrong one in 100, that's fine from a research standpoint. You have plenty of statistical power. But from a clinical standpoint, that might not quite get you there. So we think about those two distinctions as well in terms of setting. And then what can we do with workflow? And how can we use digit- digitization to make workflows more efficient? When I look at our, say, the, the landscape or the customer base, you know, Phyllis, we're pretty focused on the clinical side of things. So we think about reference labs and large pathology practices as a setting where we, we land uh, these kinds of solutions. We also think about things like IDNs and hospital networks and hospital settings. And those often are driven really by the kinds of things I just talked about, being able to archive, route, being really efficient in the workflow. And then there are academic medical centers who certainly have that interest, but also 
often apply a research access to their work. So that's a little bit how we see the landscape today in terms of where these technologies are landing. Interesting distinction you make between research and clinical practice. The needs and the expectations and actually what they do is, is somewhat different. And archiving is certainly a huge deal in digital pathology, at least now where we're sitting on millions and millions of cases of the past. And what? how do we handle that? And maybe to a clinician or a, a pathologist signing out cases with a clinical focus, the archiving is centers around, well, how can I access these images if I need to see them again at some point in the future? Or if I have a patient that I have a biopsy sitting in front of me, how can I look at that patient's biopsy from six months ago? Versus in research, the considerations might be, well, we need to archive this so we can create new tools, so we can develop large data sets, and so on. So certainly different different applications or different strokes for different folks. How far have things gone come in the last 20 years? The technologies to scan a slide has been with us for over 20 years. What we're able to do with it I think it is is certainly evolving. So how far have we come in the past 20 years or so? Yeah, um, look, we've, we've come quite a ways. And if I could just go back a little bit further than 20 years to say the um, uh, beginning of digital pathology, at least the earliest reference I could find is by, is by Bacchus, who developed a machine that could scan a slide digitally. The cost was, at the time, $300,000 for one of these machines, which is not too bad, but what is the throughput? It, and at the time, it took uh, 24 hours to scan a slide. So really nice proof of concept. Those economies of scale are not going to work in a, in a hospital or any kind of laboratory setting, but it really showed the, the beginning of the technology. Where we come from, from there, we've gone from that, say, early digital microscope kind of view of things to, I think, a more scaled pathology offerings that, that really you know, took off in the research base first, I think, you know, largely because of the sort of different considerations and research applications and also the, the need for uh, clinical quality. You know, Phillips were proud to have uh, sponsored the, the first FDA study for uh, an FDA-approved device. That now took this, you know, which was really a, almost a, I mean, it was commercial, but really a proof-of-concept commercial machine in the mid-90s to something that can be used in routine use uh, with high reliability and high scale today. Now, that just gets you to the point where you can now use this in routine clinical practice, and you can then start acquiring these, as you say, massive data sets that can be built out almost as the exhaust of using these systems in clinical practice. And, you know, I think where we'll go next is what, what, what can we start doing with all of that information? What can we start doing with all that information? So you mentioned FDA. So Philips, of course, is one of the handful of, small handful of companies that have an FDA approved scanner. But I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what that actually means. Tying that into the COVID uh, global health emergency in the in the last year or so, I think, is interesting. I think that kind of gave us a shot in the arm, so to speak, in terms of accelerating the adoption of digital pathology, where there was now, in addition to all the benefits of digital pathology, perhaps the need or the an urgency for pathologists to be able to work remotely, to be able to be uncoupled from their microscope, so to speak, and view things on their monitor. So I think it was around 2017 where devices were cleared by the FDA, but we've seen regulatory barriers come down based on COVID-19 health emergency. So both CMS and FDA waived requirements, but let's be clear, the FDA clearance is more what allows Philips to sell and market devices. It's not what it's not permission for pathologists 
to actually use the scanner. Is that right? A, a couple of things in there. Um, one is the, so the FDA approval is really for called primary diagnosis. So, so this allows a pathologist to use the, it's not just the scanner, it's the scanner, it's the, the imaging pipeline. It's, you know, if you will, the say the, the, the photons leaving the slide, you know, all the way to them, those same photons hitting the pathologist's eyes are, are part of that medical device. And the approval by the FDA allows them to use that in, in place of a, a light microscope for primary diagnosis. Now, what happened under COVID, as you point out, is that CMS and FDA have issued a waiver allowing pathologists to use these sorts of devices, I think, whether or not they have uh, formal uh, IVD approval or not. I'm not a regulatory expert on this space. I want to be a little careful. They're doing this under this waiver. Whether that waiver remains in place, you know, uh, longer term or not is, is really a decision for the FDA. The study we ran here, you know, at Philips was really to show that, you know, using these devices is, is safe and effective. And from a primary diagnostic perspective, pathologists can confidently uh, use this. Now, as you point out, pathology in this in this uh, wonderful field we have we have called laboratory medicine, other sort of regulations like you know CLIA and CAP can go ahead and develop their own laboratory, develop tests, uh, and use these sorts of devices in, in those settings uh, as well. But that's what this is what the FDA approval allows allows us to do. Now, you know it's funny you, you talk about COVID. I was thinking about this last week about you know what how this has accelerated. I think the adoption of digital pathology, and I think that to me has been more meaningful than anything that else has happened in a while in the field. During World War II, we really had the another uh, calamity that we faced uh, globally really accelerated the industrialization of penicillin. It basically sat on the shelf for 12 years or something since Fleming's uh, first publication of that. And it really took a, a major global event to drive the, the need to industrialize it. In some way, this is certainly not the now, I don't think we'll have the same impact that penicillin had, but I think that, that the approval of, of pathology and the adoption of digital pathology in sort of remote diagnostic settings has been really catalyzed by what we've experienced during the pandemic. That's a good way to put it as a catalyst. I mean, I think there's a certain sense of inevitability about digital pathology, but maybe it doesn't unfold. No one could have seen this coming and it maybe doesn't doesn't unfold in the exact way you would think. Medical field, I think appropriately is, is somewhat conservative when it comes to adopting new technologies. So unless it's, it's it, there's a real breakthrough, uh, either on the front end or a real need driven, in this case, so I think it was more need driven, you actually get that activation. I think that, that that's what we're seeing. Yeah, it certainly has accelerated the field. You know, I think we're kind of coming to a level playing field now where people are comfortable with digital pathology. We have the ability to scan and acquire images and view them, but there's always more. How are we going to generate data? How are we going to develop new tools? How is pathology going to offer value to patient care? In terms of the value proposition and what digital pathology is going to be able to do? it generates so much more data or it generates data or images have become data. Whereas in the past it was a phantasm in the pathologist's mind and he wrote down, he or she wrote down the diagnosis on paper and maybe that got stored. So it's a whole new world. How does that differ from a few years ago? First is just is what you said, right? So in the analog world, in the glass slide world, the only data that got generated true data that got generated was the pathologist's report, their impressions and, and diagnosis based on what they see under a microscope. That was all of the data that you got. Now, two things sort of are opened up. First is the connection, the digital connection between that 
digital image of the glass slide and the pathologist's uh, diagnosis, the pathologist's impression, right? So you can sort of connect those two annotations or the annotation together with the image, whether it's something like Gleason scoring in prostate or whatever the diagnosis happens to be, you can connect that back to the image. But the other thing that you now get is the connection between that image and other downstream diagnostics that take place. So now I, don't, I have the image, I have the pathologist's impression, but then if that same tissue is analyzed for molecular results, molecular markers, genomics findings, if it's gone through sequencing, all of that information can then be connected back to the image. So you have those sets of annotations as well, which are in a way just as rich as what you got from the initial pathology report. And you can even go a step further and say, okay, what in, how were those patients treated and what happened to them? And can I connect that back to what I might've seen under, under the image? We have this like one way direction in diagnosis. If you don't have that digital image where you can go from the pathologist sees the image, writes results, the tissue gets uh, tested for say molecular features or whatever, and then patients treated. And as we know, some patients respond uh, differently to the same sorts of interventions. There are a lot of factors that go into that, but certainly now being able to connect that back to the pathology image, I think is incredibly powerful. Molecular diagnostics was the, has been the big story from the late 90s into the early 2000s. It's a little more clear, I think, in the minds of people where this, that, and the other molecular features, alterations, mutations, and so forth correlate with clinical outcome and possibly even response to therapy. And maybe people weren't thinking about histologic features or what's looked, what the pathologist sees under the microscope as correlating with outcome and providing much value. But I think we're learning there is a lot of data there, and we're showing that there's the opportunity to provide value. Information has been siloed, right? We have molecular, we have radiology, we have pathology. So how can we bring things together and create a more integrated uh, system of diagnosis that's actually going to help patients and, mo and move care forward? Yeah, I think like that's front and center in terms of what we're working on here at Philips. I mean, we really are looking at that integrated picture so we can help drive a better diagnosis based on what we see today, but then use that to drive, a, you know, basically a learning system. Uh, and look, when I talk to radiologists uh, uh, who are um, looking at, say, lung nodules, uh, they'll tell me, I can tell. I don't know how they can tell, but, you know, these are trained radiologists. They can look at it. They have an idea of how aggressive the disease is going to be. Or if it has certain molecular features even will show up visually in, in a radiology report. I hear the same thing from pathologists, that they have a sense of looking at the image in terms of what those molecular features are going to be because they've seen so many of them. Now, is it going to be as accurate as a you know PCR test? No, right? But it's, it's, it's these partial pictures you get from impressions of images, uh, whether they're radiology images, whether they're pathology images, the actual molecular findings that are tested for, that together, you know, our theory is you, you know, would, would get a more uh, definitive picture of what's happening with the patient. You know, it, it just give you a really um, uh, easy example that people are probably familiar with in, in a breast cancer diagnosis. There are three tests for HER2 uh, amplification. One is the uh, immunohistochemistry test, right? The IHE test for, uh, and which can come back as equivocal. There's a FISH test, which has a, a certain test performance, false positive, false negative rate. And then you could also uh, impute it through next generation sequencing where you can compute ERB2 uh, amplification. There are cases where those three tests are, are um, discordant with each other. You get an equivocal finding on the IHE, 
you get one finding on the fish and a different finding on the NGS assay. But something's happening with that patient. That patient's either going to respond to trastuzumab or she's not, right? And I think this is when we start thinking about pulling together the integrated picture. I'm not saying we're going to be able to solve that one particular problem, but in general, pulling together these different types of tests with different test performance around the same patient should lead to a better first-time right diagnosis. I know exactly what you mean. I think ultimately the question is, how can we get closer to the truth? We have so much you know, wrapped up in these assays and the way the clinical trials were done, and it's not always easy to parse out all the relevant information. You know, and I think the experience of the pathologist and the radiologist, you know, I think it's at least proof of concept that there is something there. Like if you ask a pathologist, can you recognize an ER negative breast cancer case? Can you recognize a triple negative with the morphology, right? And the ones that have been doing it over time and years, the answer, yeah, yes, you know, I can tell which histologic features correlate with these molecular features. So I think it's at least proof of concept. And we know that there's so much uh, rich information there. So, so what do you think is going to surprise people in terms of what digital pathology is going to be able to deliver? How much information are we going to be able to extract from these H&E images? I really liked what you said about the truth. There's a biological reality to these diagnoses. That's, I think, ultimately what, what we're aiming for here. Where I think we're going to be surprised, I think we're going to be surprised in, in big ways and small ways in the field, and small ways with big impact. So I mentioned things about, you know, workflows and the ability to route cases, right? So think about a complex case or a rare disease diagnosis in cancer that you could route to an expert at a major academic center to get a second opinion. Like, seems like a small thing, but that can make a huge difference in terms of the diagnostic quality that you actually get for cases where you're not looking at 100 of these a day. So I think in those some small ways will actually have big impact. And, and those are low-hanging fruit, but it, it, it needs to be done and it, it needs to be proven. I think in some big ways, there's the amount of data we're capturing in these H&E slides. There are things, and you mentioned earlier, you know, some of the morphological features, right? And so people are starting, they're starting to look at things like infiltrating lymphocytes and, and whether or not they're predictive in terms of uh, immunotherapy response. And there are things that we're not even, I think, thinking about in terms of how these cells are evolving uh, within the tumor that will give us a better prediction in terms of what's happening. I also think it'll lead to an increased number of disease targets. I mean, so many of these cancers are, especially if they're, you know, progressive, become, you know, untargetable at some point. And so I think that from a research perspective, and that's really what's going to matter to patients, right, is being able to actually treat them effectively. And I think we'll be surprised there as well, just based on the amount of information we're able to capture around these patients. The first point you made is the, the you know, the low-hanging fruit of the little things can make a huge difference, right? And let's not discount that. I mean, just the turnaround time, getting the right case to the right pathologist for expert review, not wasting tissue, I think, which is a key issue with unnecessary studies, spinning your wheels, you know, doing the right test, being mindful of resources, I think is going to go a huge way for improving patient care. And then I think it's interesting, we, we kind of entered the a dark age, I think, you know, my personal perspective in pathology, where in the early 1900s, right, the first grading systems for breast cancer came out in the, you know, the 1920s, Bloom-Richardson or the Scarf-Bloom-Richardson grading system. And we showed that histologic features under the microscope almost 100 years ago correlated with outcome. You know, but if you look at clinical practice guidelines from ASCO or NCCN, right, the grade is nowhere to be seen. 
right? So pathologists have known have known this for a hundred years, and even Till's tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. I believe the first papers on that came out in the 1930s. So we've known, and it's intuitive that the the patient's immune response is going to be informative about how this patient is going to do their their prognosis and possibly which drugs they're going to respond to. So we've been sitting on this information. We've known it's there at some level. One of the real promises of digital pathology is let's actually make this useful in patient care. There's an explosion in the number of therapies out there. That, I think, is also driving an increased need to find the right patients to match these. Because you, you think about tumor traded lymphocytes, it's not just matching with a single uh, checkpoint inhibitor, but which of the several that a patient might respond to. I don't know that it would be different, but nobody knows, right? This is, this is I think, sort of the next frontier in really trying to get that last mile to our patients a little bit better understood than we are today. And I, I like your point about some of these things we've known for, for decades in some cases, and we're still not acting on it. But I think part of it is because a lot of that information has been lost and we're not losing that anymore. Hold on to the information and put it to use. So I think one of the key components in all of this is going to be the application of artificial intelligence or AI. Let's maybe just take a high level view of, of that. What do we mean when we're talking about artificial intelligence, because I think that means different things uh, to different people. In a simplistic way, I think about it as, at least as we're applying it today, is basically, you know, pattern matching. Uh, I've seen, is what we said earlier, right? A pathologist, you know, has seen the ER negatives, can kind of recognize them. Well, if they can do that, something's happening in their brain and their neural network that's kind of processing this, and the machine should be able to do that too. The machine doesn't have context. And I'm, I'm always impressed by the, you've seen these things in, in the non-medical space where they train these algorithms on, on recognizing uh, all sorts of insects, and then they show it a school bus and it says it's a bumblebee, right? So we have to be a little bit careful about the context uh, here. But I do think that the machines will help us in the sort of pattern recognition and pattern matching. Initially, we'll see this in areas like quality control. It's not going to try to diagnose the patient. I, mean, I think that that's a, right now certainly a bridge too far for where we are, but it can certainly help a pathologist in diagnosing a patient or in a quality control measure. So if the algorithm is, is coming up with something that's discordant, it may prompt a pathologist to take a second look at the slide. It certainly could be used in, in a QC measure in the lab itself, right, to identify uh, slides that might need to, you know, ought to be rescanned or reacquired or just some other uh, image quality uh, issue on the slide itself before even it gets to a pathologist. I think for sure those kind of applications are before us. And then I also think things like workflow uh, orchestration, which we talked about earlier, could also be assisted by uh, artificial intelligence. So using the, using the systems to route the, the right cases to the right pathologists, dealing with the you know urgent cases uh, more swiftly, getting expertise where required, I think is something that algorithms can be trusted to do because ultimately they're not trying to make a diagnosis. There's kind of those two broad buckets. So one is kind of like we talked about the low-hanging fruit. Behind the scenes, AI algorithms running and saying, well, this is a breast case. This is a breast case with cancer. This is a breast case with a lot of tumor. It needs to go to this pathologist, right? This is a skin biopsy that doesn't fit any of our patterns. It's either nothing or something incredibly complicated this needs to go to our dermatopathologist. I think then the other bucket is, you know, how can we develop predictive and prognostic tools, right, to add information and to improve patient care? Exactly. And, you know, and you said H&E stain slides, and, and I think that's, you know, our starting point. You know, there's groups working on unstained slide images. Uh, there's even groups working on uh, virtual staining techniques. And again, none of these uh, today are ready for prime time from a diagnostic perspective. But I do think there's, there's stuff we're not seeing 
uh, in these images. Certainly from a morphological standpoint, there's probably constructs in these images that we'll learn as we process more of them that we can uncover. And of course, they'll have to be validated, but I think, I think there's an opportunity there as well. I kind of think of that as, uh, if you remember back to Donald Rumsfeld in the early 2000s, he famously had a press conference and talked about known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknown unknowns. Kind of what's exciting is the unknown unknowns, right? There's things in there that, A, we don't even know that they're there, or B, if we suspect they're there, it's kind of out of the scope of a human being to look at it and then see, even if we could see it, probably the computer or the AI would be much better at quantitating it or classifying it. So do you see a lot in that area, kind of in the unknown, unknown realm that we're going to be able to extract from these images? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's just the unknown unknowns, right? So it's kind of the moonshot questions. Looking at it from a biological perspective and what we know about you know, evolution of cancer, there have to be features there. It almost goes without saying, but we have to be able to show it. The reality is these seemingly very similar patients with very similar pathological diagnoses, very similar molecular features, respond very differently to the same course of care. I wouldn't call it a mystery. I think we understand that the, the, the reasons have to do with how their tumors are evolving and how they're differentiating from each other, but we haven't been able to really crack that. We've made a huge investment in the genomic space with, with next generation sequencing. The number of patients who are getting, you know, 500 plus, 600 plus genes sequenced with an advanced cancer diagnosis is, is enormous. And it's made a difference, right, for some patients, but it's not the panacea here. These other techniques like we're seeing in digital pathology could be that next uh, step change we need to take. Yeah, the next step change. So Lewis Kulat from Philips, thank you so much for being with us. Now, on a personal note, tell us, you know, thank you for sharing uh, your insights. How did you get uh, to be interested in digital pathology and artificial intelligence and informatics? I'll, I'll make a short story out of it. Most of my career was actually in, my whole entire career has been in uh, scientific and clinical informatics and really started off working on the research side uh, with companies that were doing, you know, classic drug discovery, drug design work. And then following that, got into uh, clinical genetics and clinical informatics. And, and so my interest in pathology comes from that real interest I have in biology in, in general and married that with my uh, interest in computer science. And that, that's how it came together for me. Now, what excites you? Where do you see things headed in the next five to 10 years? The, the two things are really seeing some of these small things that can have big impact really have big impact. We, we start to see it all the way through, right? So we think about a patient who has a, a very unusual cancer diagnosis getting routed to an expert instantly and gets a much more sort of expert guided diagnosis that might have been incredibly hard for them to come by in the community that they're in. We, we talk about cancer care, you know, 85% of it is, is still is takes place in community settings. A lot of those people don't have access to expertise. And I think that is something that really does excite me, this virtualization of expertise. I think that'll be really fun to see and impactful for, for patients. The other thing is a sort of bio biology nerd that lives inside me that just wonders what is we're going to learn from, from, these, from these samples as we not just acquire more of them, but acquire more with them with more data around them. You can scan a million slides, but if, if the archive you know, ended in 1965 and that's all you knew about the patients, you had no molecular data, what could you really learn from them? We have so much more information about our patients today. I feel like the pathology has been, been the missing piece of the puzzle. And I think catching that up to what we know about our patients, when we think about what we're doing with sequencing and molecular profiling and treatment pathways and other things, will really complete the picture in a way that we haven't been able to do in a long time. 
Digital pathology completing the picture. I think that's a, one, a wonderful message for our audience. Well, Louis Kulat from Philips has been our guest. We'll see you next time on Digital Pathology Today. This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.